Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two-person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie, my first child who was born last December. In this week's episode, I'm welcoming Justin Small. He's the founder of the Future Strategy Club, a creative agency that's challenging the traditional agency model. We discuss purpose-driven business and the different ways we can leave a legacy for the world and our kids. Justin, can you tell us a little bit about the Future Strategy Club, uh, what it does, how it works, and what your mission is? Yeah, so I started the Future Strategy Club two and a half years ago. My background is uh, agency and consultancy. And I guess the idea of the Future Strategy was to change the model of agencies, which my experience of that in the last few years that I was in in uh, working in agencies, kind of my role as chief strategy officer, that kind of area, was that they were becoming, I guess, uh, investment vehicles for for marketers to to kind of set up and over three years then sell up to the groups. And not that that's a bad thing in any way, but um, what it did affect was the craft and the quality of the work and and really the commitment to to delivering you know great work for clients. And so I guess I wanted to to start an agency that had a purpose from the beginning. That purpose being to just really deliver amazing work for clients, but also not to set up a business that was immediately for sale. And as we're talking about children, one of the big ideas was was around why don't people leave their businesses to their children anymore? Why is there no longevity Mm. in business? Why is it all about just very quickly uh, creating value and then selling on and moving off? Um, One of the big elements of a a consultancy is obviously your fixed costs of of hiring and and keeping consultants and creatives. The model of the FSC is really a members club model of a consulting agency. So we have about 300 plus members split between very senior C-level advisors and specialists uh, executing creatives. But the, the key difference, I guess, is that we build teams around briefs instead of giving briefs to teams. And there's a cliche that is you get these amazing people in the pitch and then as soon as you sign on the dotted line, they all disappear onto other projects and you get everyone that's left. The FSC is, is a club, Future Strategy Club. The back end of it is actually around the future of work and, and really supporting freelancers as the future of work, uh, we offer them learning and development. We offer them legal advice. We create the social kind of elements that are usually part of being part of an agency consultancy of the parties. And we're, we're trying to create a, a club that you, is kind of really the home of where you would stay as a freelancer that you can come back to. And then the, the, I guess the final piece is actually that development of our members. We have an incubator. We kind of do pre-seed so we support our members ideas at pre-seed level to try to get them up to a point where they can get investment obviously covid is um stopped a lot of things we were doing physically because we had we want to be an agency on the high street want to open ourselves up to the community and, and bring the creative skills to the community and i guess that goes back to what i started with which is that idea of what a business is for in society is one big question I've always had. You know, the apprentice kind of idea of business just makes me a bit sick in the stomach, to be honest. The <laughs> idea that business is all about 
really trying to rip someone off to get the most money out of doing the least amount. Uh, and all those, the kind of tasks they do in Apprentice actually show that. You try to create something and fake it with marketing and get money and move on. And I see business as, as, as root, um, rooted in its community. Usually what business do is they, they build a brand, they create enough profit, and then possibly as they get bigger, they move offshore and pay no more taxes. And I, I kind of feel that there's another version of, of, of business that is, is developing now, which is focused to, and, 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 and rooted in the community, supporting the community, making profit, obviously, very important, but using some of those profits to really kind of build uh, connections with the community and, and help our communities grow with us. And so I guess that's the, the, the differentiator for us as an agency is that we're not just trying to make money. We want to use some of that money to support other people to grow and build their own businesses and hopefully to build the community in which we live. So many bits for me to unpack there on the startup side and the dad's side. You talked a little bit there about, you know, wanting to build a business that doesn't become what you abhorred in your previous life. And mm. I remember talking to you uh, very early on in the FSC's life about the structure you put in place. You know, you wanted to create something that really existed for the for the long haul. And I think you touched on something really interesting about, you know, there's a very cliched idea now that startups are not familial in nature. You know, the high performing sports team versus the family challenge. And that's a really interesting point because there are definitely aspects of family dynastic uh, legacy that helps you build a business for the really, really long haul. And, you know, I'm a a long time fan of the English cricket team. I'm not going to say long suffering anymore because, you know, we're doing pretty well. But, you know, there have certainly been times where having as the strategy of uh, running a, a business like a sports team certainly isn't the best in the best interests of creating something great. So I suppose I wanted to unpack a little bit with you the structure you've got. You've got this really fascinating combination of benefits, kind of corporate or corporation style benefits and a members club. But you want to also make a really long term, long term business. So, you know, what's been great about that and what's been really difficult? I guess the, the biggest challenge is not taking investment to kick off or not taking investment that comes with a with a kind of a, a pound of flesh at the end of it. Obviously, once you take investment in, in any business, especially an agency, that investment wants its return in a set time period. And therefore, in order to, to return uh, that investment, you have to make certain decisions based on, on very commercial strategy, which is is fine. But when you want to build a, a kind of, I guess, a movement or a community, sometimes, you know, we had to build the community first. So there was no point me starting this and going out to a load of business saying, hey, I've got this new agency when I didn't have any capacity, because I had no members in the club, you know, and I didn't have the money to hire people, um, obviously permanent. So we spent a year, year and a half doing, I don't know, you were next door to us, you probably, probably <laughs> heard them, events, like two, three events a week sometimes. Uh, we did dinners, we did uh, uh, kind of uh, speaker events, we did parties, we did live music gigs as well, all trying to kind of attract the kind of amazing talent that the UK has, creative talent. Uh, and we also did high-end kind of, we called drink tank dinners, where we invited really C-level at people, clients and kind of uh, consultants to come and have a three-course meal. And we had a presentation. And so we did, we kind of had to kind of create a brand within these two communities, the kind of the director level and the, and the kind of more kind of lead kind of designers, creative directors, that level as well. And that took a, quite a long time and a lot of kind of, you know, actual kind of proper work because setting up for parties and, and all that kind of stuff is, is hard work. And then having to, a tour in the morning clean up as well. So that, that it was really fun, but 
the the difference was is that if I had an investor at that point, they would have been you know going crazy because where's the sales? Where's the numbers? And I did have people, friends, telling me, "What the hell are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about the belief and the unknown of when you will set start a business. You can write plans as much as you want, but you really don't know a lot of stuff. And and I mean that in that you don't know the future, but you also don't know the basics of running a business. I, know, I, I come from consultancy, so I know a lot about branding, about disruption and transformation, but, you know, tax and, and legal and stuff. So you learn and, and you learn, uh, you have to learn very quickly. And, and that's one of the major challenges. One of the major challenges is not having, not not taking investment, which is is good now, but then seemed quite was very difficult. And 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 building that that community from scratch. My take on this was always to go brand first because you build loyalty, and then and then you mm. you you can almost kind of put the service in the middle of that. Now you have the businesses up and running, and that flywheel is spinning. Has it changed the role of that community? Is it still acting as that catalyst? I suppose that's a difficult question to ask in the time of COVID. Um, but I'm fascinated <laughs> by this because lots of people talk about this in the startup world now, particularly in the more consumer facing aspects of startup, that if you're building a technology product, actually, the most important thing is your users and building a community of uh, really enthusiastic people who believe in your product is as important as building the product itself. And so I see lots of uh, um, uh, analogies between that and what you've done. I'm just interested in how it works now, because obviously you're much more than just a product, right? You're providing a whole set of services to two clients. Yeah, I guess the change is quite a big change for us. We do not want to be only a digital platform. We want to be a physical space. And that's what we're leading going towards. But obviously, we had to stop that. And in one way, that's difficult. In the other way, though, our, our 300 kind of plus platform has now become a global set of talents that can be used anywhere in the world, which is, and, and also the, the our kind of distributed kind of very lean model of running a consulting agency has come into its own, you know, in COVID. Because whereas before COVID, we'd get a bit of pushback from large corporates around the model, they'd be interested, but they would ultimately go for the kind of standard. Once COVID and everyone closed down, then it didn't really matter having, you know, seven people from different parts of the world on mm. a call as long as you're delivering the work. So that helped. But we're, we are desperate to go back to build that community. That's been a challenge. and But we have built up. We're, we're kind of opening, hopefully, in LA in the next few months and trying to start a same thing there with um, some members that we have, like five or six members in LA at the moment, who we're hoping to create a, a branch and in New York as well. So it's kind of a, a kind of movable feast in some ways. For us, it's actually been quite beneficial in a few ways. Yeah, it's fascinating the way it's definitely catalyzed a bit of a pivot. You must feel like you're ready to fire out the traps back into the real three-dimensional world. We certainly do at HX as well. You know, you learn through the baptism of fire what really works about remote and what doesn't. And as you say, it's been very, very difficult for lots of people. But I feel like you've made it through lots of lessons learned. So I want to pivot back to the dad's part. You've had children uh, long before you set up the FSC. How did that figure in your choice to go it alone? Or did it? <laughs> did it? Uh, I don't know. My kids are listening. Um, <laughs> actually, for me, it's probably different to you because I'm a bit older than you. I was working in an agency probably on the on the kind of board as a partner. I'm 49 now. I was probably 47 then. Probably well, nearly the oldest person in that agency. 
and it seems to be an accepted part of the of the creative industries that as you get older you end up not doing work and you lose the skills you lose your tools and that doesn't that didn't really work for me obviously the the fear of having a mortgage and having kids and and starting new business but i never i can't say that i ever felt kind of 100% safe in a perm job i think perm jobs as maybe has turned out, are the least safe place to be because you are mm. relying on someone else to to pay you, and when they stop paying you, you are thrown into with you're not ready, you know. Whereas mm. freelancers are always kind of on the hunt; they're always ready. And so, when the pandemic or this kind of disruption comes, they kind of take it in their stride. Yeah, it's difficult, yeah. but they're not being thrown out onto kind of the the pile with a load of other 48, seven-year-olds all trying to find the same jobs, which actually would have been very scary, I guess. So I don't, to answer your question, I don't really think I thought about around this as a risk against the kids. I think in some ways I would think the other way that I do it for my kids because I want to build something that possibly, not necessarily they take over, but that, that creates some more security for them than a perm job, which I don't see having any really i don't know yeah. how how it worked for you but th- there's always days in 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 this where you just just lose the kind of set you get a view of the possibilities where things can go wrong and it and it kind of freezes you for a couple of days and i've learned to just let that those kind of feelings flow over me and they go away after a while and then you continue but i just think it's that the fear that unknown of two three clients drop out in one go boom there's nothing here and if yeah. you think about it too much you wouldn't do anything to be honest i guess it, it, it's very true I, it's really interesting to hear you say that i think there's something that i've noticed in when i talk to founders that they have successful ones particularly that they have in common is that their decision to set up a business didn't really feel like a choice um uh, you know they knew they, they needed to do it it was something they wanted to do I'm sorry, this is definitely Startup Dad's podcast, isn't it? Because my daughter <laughs> is right daughter on daughter you. in the background. Up a fuss. <laughs> She's reflecting on my decision to set up Hyper Exponential. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, they, it, it was something they had to do. And it was like an ineffable compulsion inside them that drove them to do this. And, you know, we work with a mix of contractors, freelancers, and, and we have perm team members at HX. And there, there are different types of freelancers, I think, in the world. There are some people who do it for the, they see themselves as embedded employees, but under a different structure. And they've made different choices about the financial transaction that they want to make with a business. But broadly, they feel like they're doing a job within the company. And then you've got people who really want to own their own destiny. And, and you know, they're, they're companies of one um, and craftspeople. Um, and those people by far have been, you know, the most well prepared, in my view, uh, for this sort of thing. Probably better prepared than the bigger organisations, quite frankly. Um, and that's been really interesting uh, to reflect on. How do you think about kind of purpose and passion? You know, I look at FSC and it just it's it's a very, very clearly, you know, proudly or, you know, borderline, brashly mission driven business. Um, and, you know, how does that feed into, you know, the way you go about your work and also actually the way you raise your kids? It's quite a cliche now, purpose driven business, isn't it? Everyone jumped mm. on the bag working. You know, I, I guess if you're going to if you're going to take the risks that you, you take when you leave a, a well-paid job which is relatively easy and you know you get weekends off and you go home at 5 30 if you're going to do that then either you're doing it for a passion a, a thing that is driving you and a byproduct of that is probably the profits or whatever comes out of it in terms of financial benefits 
or you're leaving uh, because there's just a pure financial kind of opportunity that you're taking, which has nothing to do with your passion. Uh, but you can see that if you do it for five years, you'll be set and you can go and do whatever you want of that. The second one, unfortunately, for my wife and my kids has never really got me out of bed. It just doesn't. And uh, it's a shame that I can't do anything that is pure financially driven. Uh, but the but the first one, the passion is is, I guess, the only way I can really force myself to work 80 to 100 hours is that I I and the fear obviously of failure <laughs> there's some amazing people and we create some amazing stuff in the UK and just being represented by these these all these amazing talented people being represented by these agencies that have no other purpose than to the founders to make enough money to buy a boat in Marbella or whatever they do with <laughs> it just seems wrong or seemed wrong and still seems very wrong to me the members that we have are all all kind of almost like carpenters in some ways. They have a trade, they have a practice that they've spent a lot of time putting a lot of effort into into perfect. And when you work in an agency that doesn't give a shit about that really and just wants you to knock it out and get the money in, that's just really disappointing. It's just a really shit way to to do your job. And if there's more agencies like us that want to base it around craft and quality and care, the better it is for the industry. There'll always be the the profit-led ones, and I don't think that's a problem, but I wanted to give creative people and consultants a, a place to call home that actually fitted their values. The the the, the kind of uh, animal farm thing where agencies set up and write values on the wall, um, and they use it like, we're human, we, we care, whatever they are, and then they paint over them as, as those values aren't useful. The same as not working with big oil or tobacco. When that comes in and it's worth a couple of million, you'll find that values are only values if they cost you money. You can say values all the want, but as soon as you have to give up a contract with whatever, BAT or BP, uh, worth a million pounds, that's when you find out what your values are. <laughs> it's really true. It's really, really interesting. And it's always the very difficult choice. You know, I think that's a really powerful litmus test. It's very difficult in the face of lots of uncertainty and fear of the unknown at the beginning to stick to your values. Uh, but I suppose I'm keen to push on the door of, you know, how that plays out to your, your children and when you're trying to teach them values. And, you know, the modern education system is heavily diversified in the UK, right? You learn lots and lots of subjects. You can, if you want to, incrementally inch forward being as, you know, as good as geography as you are, design technology or whatever it is. Uh, apart from obviously wanting all your kids to always be brilliant at as many things as is humanly possible. How does that influence you when you look at the things your kids love, what they're doing, what they're going after? You know, in an era, as you rightly say, where, you know, you can be a craftsperson at the age of 17 or 18 if you want to. I mean, Evie's got a few years left, so I'm putting that off personally. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> but I don't think uh, yours may be a little bit closer to that. Well, it's interesting because I just got three texts just before we started recording from my son downstairs. who And those kits are, can I sign up to Bitcoin now with your information? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. It's so brilliant. And because he's just suddenly, he's got time in between his lessons and he's obviously, he's looking at houses in Hawaii and basically has decided that if he becomes a surgeon or a doctor and he has to earn like over 200,000, he can get a visa in Hawaii. And he's found the house. He showed me the house yeah. with a swimming pool. And he's do, he does a lot of that. It's just kind of weird. And I'm just telling him. And so, look, you're kind of looking at the end goal and mm. not looking at the journey. Because the journey, that journey is probably 15 years of training, you know, <laughs> medics. But I, it's a really interesting question, actually, Amrit, because I don't think I've really thought about how do I think about my kids. I guess I, I come from... I think the only kid in my whole family to go to university kind of where I grew up in a pub in Tom and 
but I was lucky enough to go to an amazing school that drove me to go to university, which I had to kind of fund myself because I lived in Spain and couldn't get any any grant or something. Those kind of struggles just being part of it. And I guess I, from that comes my expectation that my kids will will push hard, not necessarily, again, for money, because that's not what I, I particularly am interested mm. in, although I kind of like the security of it, but <laughs> my, maybe not the just complete drive, is that they find something that Monday mornings they want to go and do. And that you can never find something that is always amazing. But if 80% of the time you, you're learning and, and believe in what you're doing, then the byproduct of that is financial gain, hopefully security, because I don't mm. think you need to be uh, millionaires. I don't think it makes much difference as long as you're able to fulfill the kind of four the four stages of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of these, I guess. So I guess this that the, well, your question will actually kind of will start to I'll start to understand the answer as my son, you know, he's he's uh, thirteen, so he'll be choosing his GCSEs in a, in a year and a half or whatever. As he starts to do that, and mm. weirdly, we don't, you know, um, we've been talking to them about dot being doctors and stuff and being, doing medicine. And I just feel, I, and as I think about that, I'm thinking actually I'm looking for them to do those kind of jobs that will give them a complete uh, kind of amazing platform to go anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, and to then go into any amazing area that they want to add on to after doing medicine. And uh, that's really traditional, isn't it? <laughs> and and I find myself probably being quite traditional in an old sense of I want them to do a like my wife's an artist. And it's like, yeah, you can do that on the side, but you can't be an artist. No, absolutely not. That's really <laughs> odd, that, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think your point, it's a, it really resonates with me about you can't focus on the outputs, right? Because the outputs are only what you get after you do the inputs, right? <laughs> and I think it's one of those things, you know, it comes back to your point about the, the boated Marbella thing, right? Becoming a founder, setting up a business, because you love the idea of being a billionaire, is a terrible idea. It's like... Go to the gym and expecting that just going to the gym is going to make you, uh, you know, a world class powerlifter or whatever it is. What makes you a world class powerlifter is pain and suffering over 20 years, right, of actually doing the doing the exercise. And the same thing goes for business and, uh, and school, right? If you if you're not incentivized to put the work in, you get nothing out of it in, lo- in lots and lots of different ways. Um, pivoting is completely away from from that. You know, again, you picked up, you're, you know, incredibly driven, one of the most driven uh, founders I know. And it, you work a really, really intense, uh, longer than average work week, even for a founder, I would say. Do you use a routine? Are you a stickler for a routine? How do you balance that with work and family, particularly working in the industry that you do? Do you have any hacks or tips for how you do that? Well, that's a really good question. Is there a routine? There's a lot of different types of work, isn't there, in, in a day to day as a founder. There's all the kind yes. of admin stuff and the tax stuff and the contract stuff. You're, you're just trying to build, you know, sales. You're trying to deliver projects. You're trying to hire people. And the kind of running of the business is something you usually wouldn't be doing once you get to a certain size and you can, you can get people in to do it. It, it kind of goes in, in ups and downs. I, I have no especially the creative stuff just happens when in, in certain moments. And how, how does that fit into a schedule with, with kids? I do actually find myself that I'm very good at, so obviously some weeks I can work weekends and evenings and stuff. And that, it naturally comes to me that I just switch off sometimes. And I naturally, I think, protect myself from, from burnout by just, even if I've got a load on, I just switch off. And that doesn't always happen, but I find a lot of time that I'm just doing it naturally I'll, I'll focus on making sure that I'm around. And then when I have to, I will work weekends. And, and so that yeah. balance comes naturally. 
uh, in some way. Obviously, when you're in financial distress, uh, in the sense that you you don't have the uh, kind of much in, and you can see only three months ahead, I think that that drives a lot of real hard work because you're scared. And I think fear is one. It's not very nice, but that drives a lot of probably overworking and, and some of the burnout. You know, the kind of anxiety that comes from running businesses is, and that comes ebbs and flows. Luckily, yeah. I think your point about ebbs and flows is so true. We had some really interesting training last year. We had a third party speaker about just being resilient through, you know, the pandemic and the, the challenges that the, the unprecedented challenges we've seen. And they made the really, really great point that sport is a great analogy for many things, right? Including business and about how world class athletes plan to peak. Right. They plan to peak and that involves periods of downtime and uptime. Up you know, by definition, if you're sustaining a level of output, it can't be your maximum level of output. For me, you know, I just like you, I really struggle to turn it down. I find that very difficult. And that's the cliche that is, happens a lot with founders. But also that sense of opportunity cost, right, is keeping you just really focused on what could happen next. And actually thinking a little bit about wanting to be in the right shape for the opportunity when it comes was a really good framing for me to think a little bit about that. Thinking about how restorative time with family and your kids is it's something that's helped me a lot find that balance and I definitely you know I can definitely relate to the Edson flow I'm definitely jealous of you though for doing that naturally because I'm terrible at that but in my calendar I have Evie time yeah it shouts me in the face in capital letters five o'clock to seven o'clock like that's the most sacred time I've got and I'm not going to get it back so stop Uh, and I'm mindful now that that gives me 12 minutes doesn't it but that's fine we can work on that (laughs) yeah I mean the other the other stress of that like the way I do it is that you Never, I never feel I'm working hard enough, actually. Mm. And actually, the last few weeks, I feel that I was um, doing what normal people do and watching a bit of TV after dinner and, you know, yeah. just watching a bit of whatever I was watching. And I suddenly realized I'm not getting enough done. I need to be working during the week, you know, even if it's a couple of hours, just to set your mind for the next day, which I have, I was doing before. And I kind of suddenly just allow myself to have a break. And then mm. suddenly I catch myself and think, actually, I got to work harder. And so, it is the kind of the dilemma of working for yourself, whether as a contractor, but I think as a, as a founder, there's no end to how much work you can do. You can never stop. You know, you can always be doing more. The, the cliche about American kind of the work, if you work hard enough, everything is possible. It's not true, though. You can yeah. work hard enough on, on loads of things and it'll never go anywhere. And I think that's a big part of, of, of being a founder is knowing when I guess knowing when you're when you're when the path you're taking up that mountain is 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 going to end in a dead end and trying to make yeah, decisions. Absolutely. Okay, my last one for you. Um, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned from your journey so far as an entrepreneur that you want to pass on to your children? It's <laughs> not a small question, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I said I've got easy time, but now I've I've dropped that bomb on you. So, uh... <laughs> um, the biggest lesson that I have learned. The key element is that it's a never-ending learning. So, what I would never want my children to do is 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 choose a career that had no growth in it. I guess if there was a lesson, it would be don't choose jobs that within two years you'll be experts at. Choose jobs that will take you a lifetime to be experts that ne- and that you never become an expert. That's probably why we're we're focusing our children on STEM. They happen to be quite good at, at maths for some reason I don't think I was but the STEM leads you especially in the next 20-30 years I guess uh, leads you into areas where you can be creative and and form a career that builds on itself 
over many years and you just get better and better. You know, if you do 30 years of being a, in medicine, 30 years time, you have built a career of, and, a, and a bank of knowledge, which is amazing. The trouble with being a, an artist is that you can do 30 years of being an artist and it's still very subjective, your output. <laughs> and that re- that's really kind of uh, difficult to see my kids in that situation. Even my wife went down that and it's mm-hmm. amazing. But if you spend 30 years on something, I would want to see you know, you're, you, you've kind of got somewhere it's built on, you're mm. recognized for that time. So yeah, so, you know, a, a job that that you can never be a full expert. So really big areas, I guess. Yeah, that's great. That's really, really great. Before I let you go, I would like, though, to take you through our startup shout out section, which is our non-sponsored section where we call out startups, founders or early stage businesses that have caught our eye and deserve a bit of free promotion. Startup shout out. So my startup shout up is the Good Gym. You join up and you go for a run, but on your run, you stop off at, say, an, an old person's house, an isolated person's house to have a chat and a cup of tea. And then you carry on with the run or you do it in groups and you go and help someone move a piece of furniture that can't move it as a team. Or you go and help do a bit of their gardening. So it's all about in some ways connecting exercise to 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 helping um kind of deal with this kind of isolation pandemic you know that we have where there's a big percentage of of people in the country that don't see anyone for for months on end that combination of 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 those ideas i think is so um it's so heartwarming in some way that I just love to kind of have come up with that idea and run that business. There's something so beautiful about it. And it to me, going back to right at the beginning when I was talking about what is the purpose of business, that is one of the purposes of business. These kind of creative ideas that can create revenue for a business that can then can then drive that kind of outcomes. It, it just it just makes me um think good of business, which is sometimes is quite hard to do because of some of the things that some businesses do that are set up. So yeah. The, um, the good gym. Join That's it. That's great. Though it sounds like a really vital service in the true sense of the word. And as you say, deserves a good boost when we can do that. So my startup shout out this week is a service called Fresh Fitness Food. Very different from the good gym, although I suppose nutrition being a key part of good health. And they are, uh, I think, London based predominantly at the moment, food delivery service for people who are extremely busy, but also trying to eat healthily. And I found them an absolute lifeline while I try and scale HX, look after EV and have more than 35 seconds of spare time a day. You talk to them about the goals you want to achieve from any sports you're doing, your food diet preferences, and they will deliver food to you every day, which is healthy and tasty and nutritious and varied. And it's a sort of thing that is well worth it in the context of it being very easy to reach for a takeaway and food waste and all of those sorts of things. They're heavily invested in sustainability. Uh, their, their food packaging, for example, is recyclable. It's really, really great. Um, they're all around great service. So that's mine today. And we'll be sure to follow up from our Twitter to promote links to where you can find out a little bit more about the Good Gym and Fresh Fitness Food. Well, Justin, look, thank you so much for your time today. Um, how can we find a little bit more uh, out about you and the FSC? What's the best way for us to reach out to you? Futurestrategy.club is our website. And we were in Peckham Levels with you next to you. And uh, I would say come down and see us, but you can't right now. So, yeah, hopefully in summer we'll be back doing dinners and parties and everything because that would be great. But, yeah, um, the website is probably the easiest. We're on, obviously, Twitter, LinkedIn and and uh, those kind of things. 
I thoroughly recommend reaching out if you're a freelancer, because Justin does some absolutely great stuff uh, and his team. That's a wrap today. If you want to know a little bit more about the podcast, what we're doing, you can send us a message on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. Love to hear from you and potentially join our Facebook group. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you for having me on. Brilliant. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. To join our community of parent founders, head over to the Startup Dads Facebook group. 